I believed deeply that there was a population of people who needed to see themselves in this kind of story that specifically needed a relationship story that wasn't this kind of breakout story of somebody who was rebelling and not following the rules. What does it look like when we follow the rules as carefully as possible? Hello and welcome to The Alien Chronicles, a podcast that invites immigrants from all walks of life to share their experiences for a better understanding of so-called the other. Today I'm interviewing first-gen daughter of Iraqi immigrants, Huda Al-Marashi. She is the Iraqi-American author of First Comes Marriage, my not-so-typical American love story, a book The Washington Post called a charming, funny, heartbreaking memoir of faith family and the journey to love. If Jane Austen had grown up as a first-gen daughter of Iraqi parents in the 1990s, she might have written this. Her other writing has appeared in the Washington Post, the LA Times, Al Jazeera, and many more. Huda currently resides in California with her husband and three children. I am going to talk to Huda about her book and her take on marriage and relationships in a Muslim family. Welcome, Huda, and thank you for doing this interview. Thank you for having me, Sadia. So, by the way, you live in California and it's 8.30 in the morning, your time. It's brave of you to be doing an interview early morning. Uh, So, thank you for that. And we're also doing this interview remotely. So, um, I'm hoping that the sound quality is great. Me too. And it's my pleasure to be here. I've got kids, so I'm up. (laughs) (laughs) So, Huda, let's start with your childhood. What was it like growing up in California? What was the culture like at home? Can you share some memories with us? Sure. You know, I think it's really interesting when we talk about immigration uh, within the context of the United States to realize that everybody's experience is so different based on the city that they immigrated to. Even though California had these pockets where there were lots of other Arab families or Muslim families, the town my parents settled in was very small and it had virtually no community. There was a small Arab American club and it was kind of a secular social group and it didn't have any religious affiliation and we didn't really have a mosque growing up. So we didn't have that anchor. What we did have was my grandparents came one by one in the 1980, late 1980s, early 1990s. And, you know, when we talk about immigration, there's this term ethnic replenishment. And it's like when you get somebody from abroad coming back, it kind of reawakens your identity because they bring these traditions and things that you might have forgotten. And that was definitely the case for my family. When my grandparents arrived, our entire identity shifted because there was things that were more important to my grandfather to observe and to uphold. And for him having that anchor of a masjid that reminded him of the kind of masjid he would have gone to back home was more important. So my family started seeking things out that we had just gotten used to doing without. So for example, it was important to him to eat halal meat. Hmm. That was something my parents hadn't worried about before. That was something that wasn't available. So my mom 
And my dad started going to this more drastic measure of what we used to have to do back then, which was finding a few other families who were willing to go in and purchase a cow. And so that was one huge transition is that we started, you know, these more extreme measures to bring back kind of the traditions that he was used to. So that was a shift that we still observe to this day because we just got used to it. We and it has become so, so much easier, right? There's halal markets around every corner. But back then, it was a real struggle to sort that out. And then the other thing we started to do was my parents would take almost these pilgrimages to Southern California to get my <laughs> grandfather to a congregation that looked more like something he was used to, where they spoke the same dialect and observed the same rituals and practices the way he was used to. So, Huda, did your parents ever decide to relocate to a place which may have had larger Arab or Muslim community? Uh, because what you're describing, it seems that they really had to make an effort to get hold of some of the things because mm-hmm. of where they were. No, they didn't. You know, their work was there and that's where they were settled for the most part. And so they did just consistently make the effort. And my parents still live in that same town and they're still making the effort. And now it's not quite that they need to drive to Southern California, but they're driving to the next big city in Northern California. Has the demographic changed uh, over the years? It has. It has. That town has the larger Muslim Arab community. But now I think they're so used to where they've made their friends and their social connections. So they're still driving. So let's go back to your parents migrating to the U.S. Now, people come to the U.S. for different reasons. And everybody has this, you know, immigration story or immigrant experience that they bring along. What brought your parents here and how did it change your family dynamic? Yeah, I I totally agree. Agree with you. I think every family has this story that becomes their coming to America story that they share with their children. And I don't think enough of us step back and look at that immigration myth to kind of realize just what a big impact that had on us. And, you know, the story my parents told was they came to the U.S. and my father came part of that kind of brain drain of the 1960s and 70s, where a lot of physicians were coming and quite easily getting citizenship and positions because there was this need. And so he trained in the U.S. They were on the East Coast then, and my brother was born. And then they moved to Michigan and my father was, I don't think he was training at that point. He was working as a neurologist. And when I was born, they had this feeling or fear that they couldn't raise a daughter in America. (laughs) That was too risky. That was something dangerous. Like it was one thing to raise a boy, but they couldn't raise a daughter. And so they actually went back to the United Arab Emirates and they lived there for less than a year. They had thought they were going to make this shift and they were going to settle there. And they found that a little bit of America had kind of seeped into them, especially in when it came to the practice of medicine. And my father wasn't comfortable with the way that medicine was being practiced in terms of the medical record keeping and how in the Gulf there's kind of this culture that you prioritize a certain kind of patient or client yeah. first. Yeah. And he didn't like that. And this is all part of the myth, right? I don't know. There might have been other factors, but this is the story we tell. And so then they came back. He got a job in this little town that I'm telling you about in California. 
and we settled there and we never left. But what the impact that story had on me was knowing that there was this kind of conversation about the risks of raising a daughter in America. It always made me hyper aware that part of my family's sense of success in this country was linked to me, to my behavior, my morality, uh, the choices I made. You know, one thing I wanted to do with my book too was to show the different kind of an immigrant child. A lot of times in the entertainment media, we see a lot of the immigrant daughter or son who rebels and who's trying to break out and assimilate, right? And that's the story that we're used to seeing. The dominant culture really relates to because it affirms their sense of, oh, see, these are the good values that we have that when people come here, they want to be more like us. And what I was trying to do within my book and the conversation I wanted to start is there is also this different breed of immigrant child who really wants to do their best to uphold their traditions and to make their parents proud. And that the struggle that they face is also in this feeling that they're not good enough members of their original culture and their tradition. They haven't done enough to uphold it. And I definitely saw that in many of my friends in college. And I thought, okay, this is a story that has not been represented enough. And I wanted to show that kind of struggle. So Huda, from what I'm hearing, it seems like your focus throughout your growing up and adult life was to uh, make your parents happy and to make them proud of who you are. Was there an element of being content with your culture, with your cultural norms, religion? Was that part of the equation as well? Or was it exclusively to please your parents? You know, that's a good question. And nobody's ever asked me that. But there's one thing I want to say first, and then we'll come back to that. And I think one thing we talk about also with bicultural identity is like the sense of conflict, right, that you're torn. But I think what a lot of us are doing is more that we are switching. And we're trying to be socially acceptable by both standards. So when I'm with my American friends, I'm doing the things that are normative and that are expected of me and in school and what my teachers expect. And then when I'm with my family and their friends and our more traditional, our cultural community, I'm trying to do the things that I know are expected of me there. Now that said, definitely Okay, so the other part of that is I think the gift of the bicultural identity is it's this ability to stand holy in two worlds is almost like the superpower that you have this lens to see what is valuable and good in each one. And also to be a little bit critical of what you think is not working as well. And so there was definitely things growing up that I saw that my parents were advising me, that made a lot of sense, that were... Mm -hmm. And with dual identity, there comes challenges, right? And, right? and one of the challenges was to be able to satisfy both cultures and be part of both cultures. I'm assuming it's difficult to be whole in, in either one because you're trying to strike this balance and yet you cannot fully accept either culture. You pick pieces of each. Yes, Yes, it is hard to be fully present in one and to fully sense of have the sense of belonging. And you do end up creating this kind of hybrid 
identity that meshes together a little bit of both. And what I wanted to show in my book is that there is opportunity for so much misunderstanding as well. You know, those Mm -hmm. of us who grew up here are not just being stereotyped from... For example, the dominant culture is not just stereotyping us. We're also inadvertently stereotyping our families, our traditions, our own cultures, because we have no sense of the greater society. And that information that you get when you live in a country is so vital, right? You have a greater sense of what is normative in that culture. We all make up this story based on what our parents and their friends are like. And we make assumptions about the greater culture that are really, for the most part, misinformed. You know, I was joking with one of my friends who immigrated later in her life, and she was laughing at those of us born in the US. (laughs) And like our concept of our host countries that we get from the one summer spent abroad, you know, and that informs like our whole understanding of where we come from. And the danger that I see here too is I think children of immigrants make the mistake of assigning almost too much to our culture, to our differences in culture, because we're so used to negotiating. It's either this or that, this or that, that we fail. Sometimes we overlook that there are normal parenting motivations that are behind our parents' decisions. We never let them have normal human motivations. Everything kind of gets assigned to culture, tradition, culture, tradition. But I think that's also because what you see around you, like in society at large, you will see that, for instance, I'll give you an example. Like I am always hesitant to let my daughters go for a sleepover. And and I've done that. Like they've been on sleepovers and stuff. But I don't stop them because it's some kind of like or is it something that I do in order to follow my culture I do it because I am worried about their safety at times and I just don't want them if I don't know the people well I will not allow them but then this whole narrative about especially about uh, Eastern cultures, right? um, how they treat their daughters and how they treat their children. I I love that you brought the sleepover thing because (laughs) you brought it up that's the perfect example of the, this whole conversation. When I was, you know, probably your daughter's age, my parents also didn't let me have sleepovers. And I did assume it was because of this kind of Eastern culture. My parents don't let me have sleepovers, you know, because what is the thing that's distinguishing me from my, you know, so-called American friends, yeah, for absolutely. lack of a better term, right? Yeah. They're allowed to have sleepovers and I'm not. So it must be because of the culture. Now, fast forward, I'm a parent now and I see the wisdom in that. I don't want my kids to have sleepovers. And I've almost lamented like, gosh, I wish I had, I could use the culture thing as an excuse because it's so much easier or it's such an easier way to explain like, oh, this is just not our culture. We don't do sleepovers. But the truth of the matter is, and likely for my mother as well, is that she had other reasons why. And it's the safety concern that you share and I share. And now I'm seeing even a lot of my, again, for lack of a better term, American mom friends who are <laughs> making the same choices. They, you know, are, they're exactly. not, they don't want to do the sleepover thing either. So talking about your book, A First Comes Marriage, uh, you delve into the contours of marriage, uh, especially in the broader context of Eastern cultures. And I'm deliberately not using the word Muslim here because 
Because it applies to so many. And I, yeah, yes, absolutely. Yes. Because what you describe is common among other religions too. So right. were you at any point in the process scared to reveal too much about your own marriage? I was. You know, I did not have an easy time writing this. It was incredibly difficult. And I did it over several years from the time where I conceived doing this kind of project to the time when it's come out and been published. It's been about about 10 years, which has actually been helpful because I think some of my age, uh, just getting older has helped me be a little (laughs) bit braver in owning this story. But I believed deeply that there was a population of people who needed to see themselves in this kind of story that specifically needed a relationship story that, again, wasn't this kind of breakout story of somebody who was rebelling and not following the rules. What does it look like when we follow the rules you know, as carefully as possible. Where does that get us? What do those conflicts look like? I'll say it two ways. Writers are idealists and we believe if if there's somebody out there who needs our story, you know, then we want to provide that for them. But we're also readers first. And I think as a reader, I know what books had done for me and I knew what it would have meant to me to have this kind of a book when I was a newlywed girl in my early 20s. And I I believe strongly that it could do some good in the world. And so that was kind of what forced me to overcome my shame and discomfort. Now, just because I had this intellectual reasons for wanting to do it, though, it didn't make me any less scared, terrified, nervous. I still have these moments where I could think of somebody in my family, you know, a certain uncle that I would want to read this and it will make me cringe, you know, and I will feel deep shame. But for the most part, the feedback I'm getting from the people who needed the book and who needed to see a book like this has overridden that fear and shame. You know, it's kind of doing the work it needed to do in the world. And so I am I'm learning how to own the book in the world. And I will go back and say that I have been completely heartened and just inspired by how supportive my community has been and the people who I was so ashamed and fearful of seeing and reading this, relatives, uncles, have been really, really supportive. And I think it's also a really good reminder. It's almost an example of what these things that we were talking about, how we stereotype people from our own cultures. And I think I almost had a certain arrogance, like, oh, you know, because they're from the Eastern culture, they won't understand this. And now more and more, I'm seeing people who I assumed wouldn't understand this totally understanding it. And I've had to ask myself again, why did I think that? Why did I think that just because they were born abroad that they would not not get this. Do they not have books? Do they not watch movies? You know, they understand (laughs) what I was trying to do here, which is to tell a certain story. So let's talk about your husband, because there are two people in uh, in a marriage. By sharing this story with everyone, you you are exposing your husband, your relationship. um, How did he feel? How does he feel about the book and the process that you had to go through? First of all, The number one advice I would give to a writer is if you're contemplating doing something like this is first you write with the door closed, right? Like if you start to think about your husband and your parents and all of these people, (laughs) you will not be able to do the work you need to do and it just won't exist in the world, right? You'll censor yourself too much. So I did that first. I wrote what I felt like I was called to write. And it wasn't until I had a manuscript 
with material that I was invested in. Okay. Cause this is the other part too, is you don't need to start showing people things that you're just going to throw in the trash anyway. You know, yeah. not all of the things that we write, we end up publishing. So I waited until I had a draft that I was very invested in. And I believed I wanted all of this material in the book. And then I shared with him this exact kind of reasoning that I just shared with you is that I believe there was a population of women who needed to see themselves in a story. And I'm, I'm specifically thinking of like a woman who's never been in a relationship before and then finds herself married. There's no place in the West to see yourself in a book like that. If that was the kind of relationship you had, there's always this assumption that you've had previous or past relationships. And I explained to my husband why, why I was doing it. And I also explained to him that I felt that there was great potential to debunk stereotypes with a story like this. And it was at a time where the political climate, it was and still is quite terrible, you know? Yeah. So he could see the worth in, in kind of doing a project like this. So that said, I explained my reasoning. I gave him the manuscript. This was before I sent it out or showed it to anybody. And I let him tell me, what were things that he just could not live with being in there? <laughs> and can, can um, you share those things on my podcast though? Yes, now I'll tell you. <laughs> and you know, and and and, and it's funny too. People will tell you that, like, you'll be surprised at the things that people will let you share about them and that they don't want you to share about them. And it's sometimes it's the things that you would have never expected, you know? Huh. And this was so interesting too. A lot of it was just even things of accuracy because my husband's more of a scientist and a man of science. And he, if I was going to tell the story, like I had to have my facts, right? So there were certain things that he just even corrected me. The more private, intimate things, he didn't censor me. He didn't say, no, 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 I can't have anybody read that because he saw the purpose that they were serving. That said, I think he still harbored this hope that it wouldn't get picked up, you know, because with any book, you don't know that it's going to get published. So he kind of gave me this green light, like, go ahead. I see what you're trying to do. Go ahead and try to submit it. And, you know, years passed and I was submitting and I wasn't, things weren't coming into place, but on my end, I persisted. I kept reworking it. And then I did eventually sell the book. And he was nervous. I mean, just as I was nervous, we were all nervous. But again, now that it's out there, seeing the kind of the good work it's doing in the world, he has been proud. And I didn't expect that reaction. Like I thought he wasn't going to, you know, for example, share with his coworkers or tell them what his wife did. And I changed his name in order to give him that buffer of privacy. But no, on the contrary, he's told everybody he works with, <laughs> shared my book. And he's so funny. He Googles me like regularly <laughs> and will come and tell me, you know, oh, I saw this. And he reads all my reviews online. <laughs> and so I mean, he's just, he's just really gotten on board with it. And I think that's something that I would say to anybody in your, any of your listeners who are thinking of doing something like this and feeling kind of afraid, is there something about when it's all said and done that it becomes a little bit more official like it has its own life and place in the world that people don't necessarily question, you know, because it is this official kind of bound book. When it's in manuscript form, when it's in draft form, it's different. Like it feels like something that can be unraveled and undone. So there is something to be said for persisting to pursuing your goals and to trying to get that kind of work out there. 
So I've read a few chapters from your book and I am a very slow reader and yet I enjoyed it thoroughly. I urge all my listeners to check it out. It's a fantastic depiction of what constitutes a quintessential Muslim American family or a family that is rooted in Eastern culture. However, some of the representation in your book in a way reinforces stereotypes about Muslims with regards to arranged marriage and some other norms. How do you justify your truth while at the same time addressing some of the misconceptions? Sure. So that's a little bit almost like an artistic decision, a little bit purposeful. So what I had to do in the beginning, because it's what my character is going through, there was an evolution of thought. Hmm. And so I had to set it up in the beginning with all of her assumptions or misassumptions up in front. So all of her biases, prejudice come up front. And then what you're seeing throughout the book is her evolution and her change of ideas. So yes, the beginning of the book is the black and white thinking where she's kind of over assigning things to culture and religion. And I really struggled even with the language. Like I like the term that you're using Eastern cultures because I was very aware that all of these kind of things that she assumes and stereotypes about her culture belong to this broader thing. It's Mm. not just Middle Eastern cultures and Mm. it's not just religion. At the same time, I was also very conscious in my book when I was using the term American that she was also American. And you know, and who gets to call themselves American? So this is very gray kind of thing that I played with a lot in the text. And I, and other drafts and versions did things like that, where I was doing the compare and contrast using different language, like talking about mainstream culture, dominant culture, Western culture. But I felt like it burdened the text and it wasn't in a young girl's voice, right? And that was the other thing I had to artistically preserve is this thought process and the voice of a 20-year-old and I mean, she really, in the, the beginning of the book, she's a much younger too, you yeah. know, a much younger teenager. And by the time the book ends, she's only 21, 22. You know, not, we're not talking about a very wise, mature <laughs> person, right? And I wanted it to make people a little bit uncomfortable and to bristle a little bit because we do this in immigrant households, right? We use mm. kind of sloppy language and we over-stereotype ourselves and others. Mm. You know, we do this all the time. Don't be too American or you're being too American or you're acting a very American here. And what does that mean? You know, what are we telling people? And what does it mean to be, for the term, to use the term you are using, very Eastern? So anyway, in the, top, in the beginning of the book, I wanted to set up all of her assumptions about what it means to be Eastern, what it means to be Western. And then that that's the kind of the conflict and the tension that the story follows. And then as it ends, where we arrive is her much more nuanced understanding hmm. of that. Hmm. So, uh, why are people in the West so suspicious of uh, idea of arranged marriage? And I want to share a quote from your book, which sums up Western perceptions of arranged marriage perfectly. So here's the quote. Not being allowed to date was the issue that plucked me out of the realm of exotic and interesting and planted me firmly into a sad documentary about people from other cultures, the kind that makes its audience walk away grateful to be themselves. That's such an incredibly true depiction of what West thinks not dating looks like. I think it's because Western culture 
celebrates autonomy, choice, independence. And they have been misled to think that arranged marriage is somehow synonymous with forced marriage. Yeah. And that there is no choice and that you are just meeting somebody on your wedding day and that's it. You have no say in the matter. And this was a lot of my uh, motivation and inspiration for writing this book because I remember that terrible shame I would feel because I was a young Muslim woman. People would almost always ask me, was your marriage arranged? And there was no good answer to give, right? Because if I said yes, it would erase all of the autonomy and the choice that I did have. You know, I definitely had agency. I was asked many, many times if I wanted to do this. But if I said no, it didn't entirely feel true because I knew I didn't have the relationship story that people assume you have. And this is also part of my character's central struggle, right? She's trying to find markers, have these kind of relationship milestones that she's seen in Western TVs and movies so she can prove to her American friends her marriage has not been arranged. If I got proposed to this way, if I have gotten gifts like this, these are the things I can tell my friends that will prove to them that I didn't have this pitiable kind of love story that they will assume that I had if I tell them my marriage was arranged. And what I was starting to see kind of this younger generation was that no matter how committed they were to upholding their culture and traditions, no matter how observant they were practicing their religion and how proud they were to talk about it online or to talk about it with their friends, when it came to love and relationships, if somebody brought up the subject of being match made or set up by the family, there was this kind of like aversion. No, 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 no. You can't do that to me. Absolutely not. I have to meet this person on my own. I have to do this on my own. I have to do this on my own. And I I feel like it stems from this kind of shame story that Western culture has propagated about what it means to be in an arranged marriage. And for for the first part, I think the term arranged, like I hate it. I, I, and I hate that in all of my articles and pieces about the book, even still that gets tagged on there because first of all, this is just marriage for us. This is just a different way of meeting. And it's actually not even that different. And one thing that my character realizes towards the end and what I would like to share with your listeners and hope that they would realize too, is that Western cultures get to set up people through family and friends all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And they don't get to be called arranged. And it's the same thing. And now Western culture has shifted into this kind of matchmaking apps and they're getting set up online, which is nothing more than like database aunties calling their information, (laughs) you know, and putting them together and they don't get to be called that their marriage is arranged. So really, we're no different. We are really not that different anymore in terms of how we're meeting anyway. You know, we still have different customs and traditions as far as dating before marriage. And even that, you know, we're seeing a lot of a shift. So this was a conversation I definitely wanted to spark and to have with the book. But I've been really disappointed also in even my sometimes how I was saying my representation in the media when I'm trying to talk about the book. I've noticed that even though I am saying I am trying to debunk the myths and stereotypes about arranged marriage, some of my pieces will summarize my story and say that my arranged marriage was arranged when I was six years old. And the whole premise of my story is that, no, I met 
the person that I eventually married when I was six years old, you know, the marriage, there was no, no, you know, and, and, and I think it's because that stereotype and their idea of what an arranged marriage is, is so ingrained that even when I'm trying to have a conversation that has nothing to do with that and who's trying to debunk that myth, they will put it in there. And I've had to ask several publications to make that correction that has summarized my book in that way. But I think that's the narrative that sells. Uh, because yes. I was I was reading one of your description of your book uh, somewhere and I, I can't recall where and it said something about your parents as being conservative and I was surprised because as I said I've read a few chapters of your book and the way you've portrayed uh, your dad and your mom I don't see them being conservative at all and what is the definition of being conservative right? I agree with you. I mean, this has been the part that's been kind of disheartening. You know, there's some parts that I was saying were very heartening and I've really been surprised and overjoyed by the people I am reaching with the book. But I've also been very discouraged and disheartened by some of the language that's been used to summarize the book. And I feel like it just goes to show that even when you're trying to challenge and debunk stereotypes, how persistent they are and how people will still make it confirm what they already believe. I've had even a lot of resistance from a certain kind of reader that's kind of struggling to take the kind of critique of romantic culture that I was Mm. trying to put forth of Western romantic culture. Mm. And they'll say things like, well, no, that was just her, you know, the character, she was spoiled, she was selfish, she wanted all of these things. Everybody knows that this is just Hollywood culture. This is just pop culture. And You know, what I would say to that is, though, but this is the story you are exporting around the world. This is what the world is seeing as the story of American culture. And if it's we have to be able to look at that and ask ourselves, what is the story in order to critique it? And I think to your point, it is true that what we see as American culture and what's being exported, it does impact people living in Eastern cultures as well. Because growing up, I was averse to the idea of so-called arranged marriage. And I ended up meeting my husband in business school. So it was different for us. It wasn't arranged. It's marriage at the end of the day, whether it is through your family, that's how you meet your spouse or you meet your spouse on your own. It's the experiences that follow is what should matter. Absolutely. Like if there was one takeaway, you know, that I would hope people would come away thinking is like, it doesn't really matter how you met your spouse. Once you get married, everybody's kind of navigating the same struggles, you know, this doing the same work of learning how to negotiate two lives of how to live with another person. You know, we're all doing that work together. And, you know, I'm not trying to advocate. This is just a story about one person's life. I'm not trying to advocate for a certain kind of matchmaking or a certain kind of style of meeting a person. But what I would like is us not to have such a narrow vision of how you need to meet your partner. Because at the end of the day, that love story that's being exported around the world is actually very Uh, It's not true. (laughs) It's not true. And it's very culturally encoded. I mean, if you were raised in a household where you were not taught to believe in kind of soulmates or these kind of magical, mystical connections, and you were taught to be a little bit more pragmatic and to think with your head, you will still bring that into relationships, but then maybe ask yourself, am I not really in love? 
Why am I not more in love with this person? Why am I having these kind of critical thoughts? And, and that was another thing I was also trying to subtly show with the character in my book is that she wasn't raised to have that kind of falling in love story. And that didn't make it wrong. You know, it is okay to be thoughtful and to make more pragmatic decisions in choosing your partner. And the way I see it, I don't think you're passing judgment on other marriages or on this this whole notion of having soulmates. What you're trying to do is that you're saying that please don't judge my story. Don't judge my truth because your truth is judged a lot more and it's judged harshly versus somebody else's truth. Absolutely. That was absolutely what I was trying to say is just, you know, open the door a little bit wider and kind of let us all in, let all these love stories in and open the door wider for yourself as well. Because the story of love in the West is such a tall order that I feel like it's very easy for people in perfectly healthy, good, stable relationships to leave them for fear that they lack chemistry, they lack a certain kind of connection. Well, the kind of connection and chemistry that we're selling, you know, in television and in movies, it's very hard to measure up to. And I really, really worry about people in our social media era where everybody, you know, on their anniversaries or on Valentine's Day is posting this picture of uninhibited joy and uh, (laughs) connection with their partners when everybody who's been in a long-term relationships knows that behind closed doors, we're all doing the work. We are all doing the work and that it's more of an up and down kind of thing. And, you know, there's can almost be like a tyranny of perfection out there Mm. that we have to have to, for our own mental health, push back against. That's such a good point. Huda, I want to ask you a bit about, and I think you touched upon this in the beginning of our interview, about how um, first-gen kids perceive their culture versus their parents. And there's always this tension, right, Uh, with regards to who is more authentic. I have that tension with my kids as well. I'm always thinking, you know, they don't know enough. And unfortunately, I think it was recently I was having a conversation with my daughter and I said something that I shouldn't have said to her. I think I told her that she doesn't know our culture enough or she is not in a position to criticize our culture because she's not part of it or something like that. Which yes, is a yes, yes. Terrible thing to tell your daughter. But how do you have you experienced that in some ways and how do you reconcile between your and your parents experiences? So, you know, I heard that kind of thing all the time. And I still hear it, you know, all the time. And especially the era that my parents immigrated in, it was this kind of time where assimilation was really celebrated, right? So even though the religious part was so important to my parents to pass on, there was this kind of understanding like this, well, you're Americans, you kids are Americans and you don't understand and you were born here. And in my mind, I would just reject that kind of blanket statement and say, what do you mean I'm American? Yeah. If I'm American, like, then what explains all these things that you're not letting me do? You know, that I'm, I'm definitely not doing the same things my friends are doing. And I needed that story of being somewhere else to have some kind of explanation, you know, for this other experience that I was having. And later in life, what I took great comfort in is knowing that this third space or this this third culture experience is a thing. 
that this is a thing, this is a certain kind of an experience, and that I can, I share this with other third culture kids, and that I'm not alone in this hybrid identity and in navigating this dual identity, and that it in itself is something that's worthy of exploring and having a conversation about. And yes, I probably will never be fully one or the other, and then that that is okay. If you were to describe America in one word, what would that word be? I would say evolving. You know, I think we're evolving. We're in a, a moment of change and we're going to have, it seems like it's a moment for some of us, you know, it seems like a moment of regression, but I think it's actually a moment of recalibration, you know, where we're having to take stock and ask ourselves, who are we going to be moving forward? I've always been a student of history and history is one of my favorite subjects, but I don't think our culture has had enough emphasis and awareness and study of history. And we are very ignorant of our own past. And we've not, we have not properly reckoned with the, our own story of our creation as a country and um, our own atrocities as a country, yeah. you know, and that's where I think, Phase two, I hope, after this evolution, after we kind of recalibrate, is that I hope that's where it's going to take us. It's this real reckoning with our past. And what story can we tell about ourselves that acknowledges these truths and moves us forward? Absolutely. So before we end our interview, I would like to ask you some fun questions as part of our rapid fire round. Um, oh, great. Like, <laughs> you can, you know, short answers. Uh, so we'll start with if, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, I am a bread and cheese and chai person. I could have that all breakfast, lunch and dinner. <laughs> Name three things on your bucket list. I would like to write another book. Well, hopefully more than just one. I would like to keep writing. I would like to travel more. I would like to go back to all these countries that my parents are from um, and visit them. And I would really, I am the most unathletic uh, person. <laughs> I don't do anything with my body, any kind of exercise. I am confessing this now in front of everybody. And I would like to do something physical. I just don't know what, but I need to find something that's an actual physical challenge that I would do. If, that would be huge for me. <laughs> if you could have any superpower, what would that be? Oh, you know what? Going back to what we were talking about with history, I wouldn't like to be able to travel back in time to change things, but I would love to be able to travel back in time and see things. Like I would just love to firsthand witness and experience, know and understand our past better. Hmm. You're moving forward failure. I had intended to actually get my PhD in history. I was talking about how much I loved history. I ended up having my children and I never went back to graduate school but I almost feel like that is what propelled me on this path to creative writing and brought me to the, my kind of truer, more authentic voice that I do love sharing with mm. the world. Your biggest achievement? My kids. <laughs> Describe yourself in three words. I'm thoughtful and a good friend. That is something that's very important to me and compassionate. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? Well, I'll say share my best piece of writing advice I ever got was that one that I shared in the beginning was to write with the door closed and to give yourself mm. that private space to work through your thoughts before you share it with the world. Your idea of vacation? Dark destination with lots of sightseeing. Best Iraqi restaurant in San Diego? 
That would probably be Alibaba. They do the most authentic Iraqi food. Oh, there is a, another, like we have an Alibaba as well. I think every city probably has one. Probably has an Alibaba. <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> Favorite emoji? Oh, probably the heart eyes ones. Ah, uh, tea or coffee? Tea. <laughs> and who- Always tea. You like tea. I'm glad you do because many people don't, which is like, um, I don't know. I am from Pakistan, so I love tea. Um, oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. Do <laughs> tea all day. Yeah. Home is? Home is now in San Diego. Uh, Huda, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you, everyone, for listening to my podcast, supporting it, subscribing to it. We have a Patreon account. You can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Indian Chronicles and make a donation of as low as $5 a month. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected. Stay connected.